Welcome to the Section Cut Podcast. I'm Dan Weissman. Today we have Christoph Reinhardt on the show, an eminent building scientist, physicist, educator, and just really a nice guy. Christoph was actually my mentor in grad school and has remained a close colleague, so it wasn't hard to convince him to come on the show. Kyle and I caught up with Christoph at his office at MIT, where we were interrupted by students at least a couple times. His devotion and excitement about teaching is infectious. So for the next 40 minutes, strap into Daysim, Diva Farino, Umi, or Mapdwell. Put on your headphones and listen to the Section Cut podcast as we learn about the background teaching philosophy, business philosophy, and the spirit animal philosophy of Christoph Reinhardt. My name is Christoph Reinhardt. I'm an associate professor in building technology at MIT, where I lead the Sustainable Design Lab. Sustainable Design Lab is a research group with a really a grounding in architecture. So a good portion of our group has a background in architecture and increasing the urban planning. And we try to find new solutions to provide architects and urban planners, help them to make more sustainable design decisions during the process of design very early on. And one of the key outputs of our research are sustainable design tools that allow you to, based on your three-dimensional cut environment, to do a daylighting analysis, an energy analysis, increasingly at the urban level, looking at various other performance indicators as far away from daylighting as walkability. Mm-hmm. So how did you get into this in the first place? Well, I'm a physicist, a German physicist by training. I studied uh, in Freiburg and Freiburg, Germany is one of these, a lot of uh, Germans call it the Berkeley of Germany because it's uh, everybody has long hair and a ponytail <laughs> in first semester. It's a very green, a youthful place where lots of research happens. This is the place where, for to my knowledge, the first time in history, a group of citizens uh, stopped a nuclear power plant from being built in the 60s. Out of this activity came really a number of research institutions, private and public, that tried to find alternatives to nuclear power. One is being the Eco Institute, this whole factor four comes out of that region. And the other one is the Fraunhofer Institute for Solar Energy Systems in Freiburg, which was founded in the 80s by Adolf Gertzberger in a garage, really. And when he founded it, he was already the head of another Fraunhofer Institute for Semiconductors, and he just wanted to experiment with solar technologies, which is uh, fascinating, really. And when I finished my master's in physics, I wanted to do a doctorate, and I had read somewhere, which I don't think it's true at all, but I had read that really, uh, obviously, architects are decision makers for putting photovoltaics on their roofs, <laughs> and uh, that the color is the most important design criteria. I, read, I, I forgot where I read this, but that was sounds kind right. of the notion. Yeah, sounds right. Um, and so I started to do my doctorate in a group within Fraunhofer, which is called the Solar Building Design Group, and we were eight people out of 450, and really the only group that tried to integrate solar technology at the building level. So everybody else worked on individual components, mm-hmm. and we were a group that tried to put them together. Mm-hmm. And before I joined the group, one of the outcomes was this self-sufficient solar home in Freiburg, and that was the first home, I believe, where a family of four lived for two years off the grid. That was 1991 to 1993. 
they basically had fuel cells uh, already, photovoltaic, completely off the grid technology to keep themselves going. And the main message out of that activity within the solar building design group was, well, A, it's possible. We can basically technically make buildings that are completely energy independent, but the costs are way too high. That building costs at the time 28 million Deutschmarks or so. So it was a big that thing. Was for house. For house, right. but, but it was to show that this is possible. I mean, if you right. think about the times, uh, the first yeah. fuel cells were there. It was a fantastic experiment that kind of sets the benchmark. So I kind of started in the field knowing that technically any building could be what we would call, I guess, even more than net zone today. It could mm -hmm. be off the grid, energy independent building. And so it all became optimization communication cycle. It's about mm. how, what kind of technologies do we use, put together in the building to make it happen and how far do we want to go? And I'm not at all of the opinion that every building has to be net zero, that every building has to meet the highest criteria of energy efficiency. But if we want to go that path, we should know how to make it as appropriately energy efficient as we can by keeping occupant comfort and all these things. So that's the long-winded answer is how I ended up. They asked me, oh, so you want to do your doctorate at Fraunhofer? You can do it at architecture, actually. And I found that a little surprising, but in Germany, you could do your doctorate basically in architecture without having studied architecture. So I got a degree from Karlsruhe in architecture with that. And this is how I ended up at a school of architecture. When did Daysim? Well, Daysim was really, Daysim is a, a simulation environment that is built off a backward ray tracer called Radiance, which allows you to do simulations of daylighting in buildings anywhere in the world, but instead of just for one point in time for a whole year. So during my doctorate, actually in the first year, when I first learned how to do this type of daylight simulations, I mean, kind of the obviously dawned on me, we should really do that for every hour in the year and it took too long. So mm -hmm. the first years I mainly spent on methods of how to speed that up. And this is where Dayson really came about. The second component that's really dearer to my heart, which is not so much used so far in the world of design is how do people react to daylighting? So mm -hmm. the first really, we, kinda, we had a method years ago of how to do what is nowadays called daylight autonomy, what's in need to predict how much daylight do you have over the course of a year. But a big component of my research already at Fraunhofer was to spy on people, look what they do in buildings mm -hmm. and how they react to that. And it's kind of interesting that after all these years, that's still not really only very naively mapped in in standards of buildings. We, in a way, still pretend the buildings are just statically standing on their own. We can say how much daylight we have in buildings. We now in lead prescribe how the blinds are closed, mm. but we went completely overboard. Right now, like now we have this fright of direct sunlight that we see basically promoted in LEED and in IESNA, where as soon as you have any direct sunlight in the building, boof, we make the, <laughs> the building is locked up, yeah. and which will probably lead to a backslash within the design community because we make buildings not very comfortable, not very interesting, right? We create these boxes that have to be overly protective. Something that's dawning on me immediately just in what you've brought up is the sort of speed of calculation yeah. that is available now that you really, your research was waiting and, and churning and trying to get that uh, optimized. Yeah. And 
we're at a point now where you're able to reap the benefits of mm -hmm. the technological advancement. So what does that feel like to sort of, you know, maybe a grandfather could <laughs> remember when a TV came into their house, but for you, it's like you have a, you have a Lamborghini at your disposal now. And it's really interesting. So, I mean, it's all perspective. When I started, I mean, some, a lot of the simulations took 48 hours to run. I right. remember when we did the Fraunhofer <laughs> Institute, it was just completely absurd, right? We yeah. have a, a visualization with a light shelf, or we can get that print out to you <laughs> on Friday. <laughs> it's just completely... That's still what I do. It still takes three days to do this. Well, the interesting <laughs> things is uh, now we can do more. So we use a churn a lot of the simulation times. I would say the most impression from designers are nowadays we're still not faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is why mm -hmm. we're trying still today new technology. We have a radiance right now that Nathaniel Jones from our group develops, which runs on the, on the optics, on the graphics card that tries to be... Mm -hmm. Right now we're about 20 times higher. I think that's still boring. I want to be at least a thousand times faster. But then we started having these debates, which are as alive today as 20 years ago. Well, how fast do we need? Do we need real time? So yes. within a second? Yes. Yes. Well, uh, then it is, I am more thinking right now, we want a result right away. And we have to basically come up with simulation tools that give us uh, feedback right away and then keep on churning. Because nowadays we are at a situation, we have different computers, right? We have a computer well, with four it's the cores. It's the iterative model. Well, it's both. I mean, when you design and draw a window, we don't have to jump to parametric design right away. Right. You can just say, oh, okay, I draw this building and I look at it. I want instantly to see how it's going to look like. And if we then, we're thinking about ways right now where we say we run ambient one, it bounds one, ambient bounds two. But you get the ambient bounds one and you look at it and after two seconds you get the ambient bounds two just updated. And then you already get an impression, you know, mm -hmm. if it's going to be good. And right. if you don't do anything and just contemplate, we keep on running. Right. Finally, the world of physically based rendering and just architectural rendering will merge more and more. I want to know about some of your influences. Obviously, some are probably outside of architecture, yeah. but I'm curious about the architecture side okay. as well. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. I mean, I was really impressed always or used as a role model Joachim Luther, who was the head of the Fraunhofer Institute for Solar Energy Systems, largely because, well, he, he taught solar physics to physicists. Mm. But I liked it when he, during a physics lecture, made in passing this value judgment, such as, well, real energy prices haven't really risen in the last few decades. And so, so kind of indoctrinated you indirectly without making it explicit. And I, I think that is still useful and I try to do that today. So I would say when people take my lecture, they know what I think about certain things, even if I don't dwell on them. Mm. And I think that's a good style. I think uh, or, or I was taken by it. Maybe people don't like the way I do it, but uh, I was really taken by how Joachim Luther did that. So that is somebody that definitely influenced me. Then the head of the Solar Building Design Group, Carsten Foss, was really a key mentor to me, who, was, who made this jump also from being a physicist to being a professor in Wuppertal of architecture. In terms of architects, from whom I was really impressed um, was early on when I was still in Canada, Danny Pearl from Loves Architects, who worked with Transolar and a lot of other groups on sustainable projects. And I was really taken by him when we were, had this biggest, this first big design charrette that I attended, really high profile project in Montreal. He had about 40 consultants in there because his client was very lavish, so he could get whoever he wanted to. 
And just the role he played as a moderator. So he had met everybody there that night the first time, but he knew everybody and knew their profile and their strengths and what role he wanted them to play on the team, which is not obviously very often, especially when you have too many people running around there and everybody tries to say something. So I think the, just the role of the architect being able to, to orchestra that is very key, and that's really something that I learned from him. Mm. I mean, other people who just professionally influenced me and who I really look up to is somebody like Matthias Schuler from Transsolar, just because I think he's uniquely in his capability to establish as a, a relationship with key architects by being very clear about that he's not an architect. And that's, of course, that resonates with me because I'm not an architect and a designer. I think I get more sensibilities now that I know what looks good or what will resonate, but I'm not a producer of design. And I think Matthias makes very clear, clearly says about a building then with an architect, what would work and what wouldn't work and what could be an idea without saying he would change the design or influence the design, which of course means that he influences the design in a major way because he explains what works and doesn't work within a design. And that's mm -hmm. a fantastic role to play. Mm -hmm. And that's ideally what I would like the whole field of building technology to, to take over that role. That we look at a design and say, well, yeah, that's good. I'm not going to judge non-sustainable performance criteria, but from a sustainable performance criteria, this is a good idea, and this is probably not going to work at all, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where we want to go with it. We can provide feedback of where things are good and where they're not. So for example, what I really love is a small tool that is part of Diva that Johnny Sargent and Jeff Nemus came up with, which is called Shader Rape, and which is basically a tool where you put a shading system outside of a building. And then it, in a complicated way, but fully automated, meshes your shading system and then does a variety of simulations on top of it, and then it colors it. And that's my favorite part, where you see then your design in red, white, and blue. And where it's blue, it's actually saving your energy, it's, uh, it fulfills its role as a shading system. Where it's red, it's explicitly bad. So if you have a shading system here, this part does harm. And where it's white, it doesn't matter. And the blue and the white is fabulous because the blue, it, it basically, this is how I think design tools should be, that they basically say, okay, this is a really key component of your design. This is actually a, another key component, but it's a bad component of your design. And the white one is the most compelling one because it gives you all the freedom that you want, right? You right. can do whatever you want to, it doesn't really matter. If you think you have to go out another two feet, do it, but it won't help you, which I think is very important because that relinks to this whole question of greenwashing, right? That there's this notion or this desire often to say, oh, we have to make this really extravagant move because it's gonna save energy. And I think it's then to say, well, you can make that move. It's not gonna save you any energy, but- It might look cool. It might look cool and I have no problem with this. Go ahead, right? And I think that's where you wanna be, so. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the tools that you've developed. Sure. So Dan actually mentioned this, but he elevated DeSem, Diva, and Umi okay. <laughs> as the big developments in sure, recent yeah. memory. And we were hoping that maybe you could talk about the origin story for one of these tools, sure. or 
possibly the one you're most proud of, which is hard to make a value because <laughs> yeah. we don't have red, white, You don't judge blue. your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah you don't judge. <laughs> you don't compare your kids. Yeah. Uh, no, they're very different in character. They, uh, they trace an evolution, right? So Dayson was really this really born out of uh, a physics need, a simulation engine to do something, which was to do annual daylight calculations. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I very much concentrated on on the simulation engine in the background. And I did some GUI work, but it was mostly horrible. And I had three generations of horrible interfaces. And then I interacted uh, with Andrew Marsh, who is actually another person for whom I have an incredible respect. He wrote Ecotect and I think a complete revolution uh, mm. in terms of graphical user interface for designers. I think he's from Australia. That's why when you open Ecotech, uh, the default position is in Perth, Australia, right. because yeah. he's from there. Right. And he moved then to Cardiff. He was a lecturer there and he developed Ecotech kind of on the side. And then it became his full-time endeavor. But just him and his wife wrote all the help files. And then they were bought out by Autodesk. I saw him giving a demo on Ecotech and was completely blown away. I always thought this is how a design tool should be. And I think to this day, it's one of the most fabulous interfaces that exist. So I worked with him on linking the two tools together and that was fine. I was happy with that role. And then really when I came to the GSD, there was this thing called Rhino. Everybody used Rhino extensively. We had then some tutorials, how do you get from Rhino and Ecotech, but that was at best cumbersome. Mm -hmm. So we just tinkered with a group of uh, GSD students, Carol Lajos originally, then Jeff Nimas, uh, Johnny Sargent, and Olsen Jakubiak. We all worked together on this project on making Diva out of it, making it very usable flows in Grasshopper and in Rhino mm -hmm. for daylighting and increasing the energy analysis. And then finally, UMI came really as my research interests were shifting, which is a reflection of general attitude in the world. The more we know and the more established it becomes that we can make energy efficient buildings. We know that we can make these objects in the world that are very energy efficient. So we naturally start looking at the city. And of course, it's not new. Many people have looked at the city as the origin of the problems and the solutions for sustainability for a long time. And for me, it was just really surveying the landscape of urban tools. And I think from my perspective, there were not many tools that really covered that we were doing and helped to expand to the urban realm, which is why we started three years ago or so to develop UMI, which is kind of an urban diva, so to speak. And first we did daylighting and energy, and then naturally it came that we really need the more performance indicators. So walkability, embodied energy, and nowadays we really need to, I think today we are at a saturation point. I taught last week for the first time a whole week of UMI to practitioners. Mm -hmm. And now there are so many concerns when it comes to the urban that we are, we started rebuilding UMI that anybody can plug in their modules into UMI. So if you're interested in urban farming, in anything else, I think one group is just if completely incapable of covering everything. So we now set it up in a way that you can plug this in, but still in a comprehensive way, look at your city and your design and look at all these performance indicators. Yeah, you, you mentioned that it's sort of a diva for, for the urban scale. Yeah. And I noticed the four categories that you evaluate with yeah. UMI, energy, mobility, life cycle, daylight. So in a sense, this is sort of an aggregator of a lot of your previous research and, mm -hmm. and work. How did you decide on what was left out 
That's interesting. I mean, some are more the energy and the daylight kind of walk together and are very natural and what we've done for a long time. Embodied energy is also something that, of course, a lot of people have worked on that for many years. It's actually something where, from a workflow perspective, uh, you can relatively quickly come up with very effective methods. If you have the raw data about your building materials, you can actually scale that up to the urban level, and then it becomes very actionable information. So Carlos Cereso from our group has worked extensively on that really, on taking uh, urban rhino models and estimating how much materials are in there, calculating that over a 50 year lifespan, and then contrast that to operational energy use. And of course, in the current climate where net zero is the new ideal, the notion of embodied becomes more important. Actually, what you really feel when you're teaching and working with embodied, if you use, and that's simplifying the problem, but if you use concrete or steel or wood, that's kind of the big question always. The differences tend to be, especially in this high level analysis, they tend to be very close to each other. The big gesture is always whether you should take down a building or retrofit it. That's the huge decision. And I think Tools Azumi can really help you pinpoint that. So Carlos has this wonderful study in Cambridge of Jefferson Park, affordable housing community, and should it be taken down or should there be a deep energy retrofit? And the argument is incredibly compelling to not take the buildings down. I don't think that stops the city from doing it, but uh, in terms of carbon in the world, not taking a building down, it's just, it's so hard to overcome that barrier. But so, now you can provide evidence. Well, we can show how that is. And in the yeah. ballpark, we, because urban analysis is necessarily more of a ballpark analysis, but if you talk about big effects there, you're probably on the right track, right? right. And the mobility kind of presented itself naturally because it's this famous life between buildings observations once you start designing many buildings and they're close together then you want to know what happens between the buildings and how mm -hmm. the kit together is and kind of walkability is our first start of telling the story and occupants leave the buildings where do they go kind of agent-based modeling we soon have i think these versions where we have people you know brushing their teeth getting up brushing their teeth <laughs> eating muesli, walking to the next building, yeah. walking into that building, we don't double account them. Yeah. And just having buildings close together, this whole notion of urban dwellers who want to live very close to where they work mm -hmm. is a whole new value proposition. I do mm -hmm. this thing in, uh, in my introductory class where now I ask students uh, to write a quick uh, first semester architecture here, quick 500 work essay, and I now phrase it so if everything works well, how do you want to live in 10 years? And how does that relate to sustainability? And it's striking that most of the North American students want to live in cities and be in walking distance from work, which kind of shows you just this whole where we are going with cities. The new ideal is living close together. And so the walkability just helps you. It's an easy to get metric for this. What about international students? A very good question. Yeah, they're actually, but I wouldn't say that I have statistically strong data, but Europe is probably similar. International students, more broader speaking, favor the suburbia model more. 
which might be part of the American dream. I heard somebody, Jeff Speck, define this theory of what did they watch when they grew up. If you grew up on Seinfeld and <laughs> Friends, then living in an apartment very local is the ideal of where you want to be. Whereas when you grew up generationally before, I know it's, it's, it's not my theory, but yeah. I think it's pretty plausible. As any watch up on some American TV show where you drive in an SUV, Baywatch or whatever, yeah. then... <laughs> I don't think Baywatch is the, uh, <laughs> the other American. I Family Matters. It was the most watched. Uh, Baywatch was the most watched show in the world. It's right? Hustle. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Hustle. Of course. But and that's, we that's, are exporting an idea. That's LA. That's, that's LA. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just a different model. Yeah. <laughs> just an observation. But uh, I think walkability really resonates for, with this generation. It's incredibly clear from your writing. Uh, the publications, the tools, the interface, and even the, the institution that you're at right now, that you're very much a proponent of open source or sort of shared knowledge. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about what you're up against in terms of what should be held as proprietary versus held by a university versus open to the public? I'm a strong believer in completely disclosing our research, our methods, how things work. I think very basic simulation engines, such as DASM or Energy Plus, or all these fundamental methods uh, should be open source and in the public domain, because ultimately software firms will have a hard time developing those and living off these. <laughs> then this is really publishable, basic, original research that can, be, can go into improving these tools. And that's, of course, the key phrase here. So we have, when it comes to software activities that create original new knowledge where students can defend on graduate from. And then you have a huge amount of busy bee work, which is, oh, there's a new version of Rhino. Oh, they changed this command. Oh, my GUI doesn't work. There are a million things that in the day-to-day the -day arena of software development go wrong. Uh, or create, uh, require resources to fix them and make them more efficient and better. And then there are just two very different schools of thought. Some say, well, we could have the GUI part also open source and just see it organically grow. And from what I've seen, I think this is very, that's just very different, uh, difficult. I think um, because once you graduate and you created these engines, you will still, if you stay in academia, keep developing these engines further and write papers on this is all good. The, the GUI work is just something, there's a lot of work that is academically, uh, doesn't create any value academically, but it's very important work. And this is why on the Salema side, I decided at one point to make a commercial software out of it so that there's still now a group of people in the world that spends all these extra thousands of man hours just keeping it going, keeping it working. There are different attitudes to that. I mean, we try to have the tool as affordable as it could be. I mean, make it free for students, all these things. I think they're just very different schools of thought. Some mm -hmm. might say, oh, you could just open it up and there will always be people that fix it. 
I think you end up with a more mediocre product than if you have a few people trying to make it very good. But that's, of course, a big decision. Also, how do you do that when you work within an academic context and you probably have something like this? So in the case of Solema, we kind of clearly said at one point, that's licensed from Harvard GSD. We uh, invented it there. And now Solema develops this further and a huge amount of work and resources go into just make the workflows better and just keep it working there mm -hmm. that way. And I think that model works well. I think you end up with a better product, but I think there are, you see alternative ways such as Ladybug or so people that try to do it another way. And I'm completely fine with that, right? It's just two different models in the world that exist. But the interesting thing is when more from an educator perspective, when students come to us or work with me, and they, of course, they have this notion that we are developing software tools. And I have to explain, we are not developing software tools. We are developing new methods that help new algorithms, new original research to make building performance simulation more applicable to design. And if you happen on the side to develop a tool, that's great, but you cannot graduate on the tool and that's a different project. Of course, there's an infinite satisfaction on developing these tools and seeing people all over the world use them. That's just great, right? That is, that's the best part of it, right? And so I have to have these two sides. On the one hand, I want them to work on really original work, but then I think it's awesome. I can spend a long time just tinkering with a button and say, oh, the button is better. But these are two things, right? right. There's some real synergy, obviously, between teaching and conducting research. Yeah. So conducting research through students. It's sort of the, I'm, I'm struggling to frame this because I thought you were going to ask this question. <laughs> Wait, point out where, the, where you are. How does teaching inform your okay, research? Okay, so how does teaching yeah. inform your research? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's easy. The two are really one. That's surprising when I talk to colleagues, especially in other fields, that I love teaching the in, uh, introduction to environmental technology class. And so far, I've taught it differently every year. And I try something out there, I'm more zooming in on certain activities that I know work well, but I get a lot of research ideas shot from just looking on how a certain material is being received. Because for me, I try to, within one semester, teach really a huge field. I mean, we all are faced with that, that we are forced to teach a very big open building technology course curriculum in a very short period of time to an audience which in part might not be that interested in it if they see the value. So I think our role is really to present this value in a way that can be rigorous, but they see the value for themselves. So to trying to say, when you do this, this is how you can then decide on how thick your wall or how insulated your wall is going to be. This is how much light you're going to have in the building. And teaching that, you always see how the students react, right? And they, every students tend to react very frankly, especially in the lower semester. So you see, well, this is convincing or it's not so convincing. So I think the two go hand in hand. And since we are in our research developing these tools that we are using, which is of course a big advantage in the classroom, yeah. we can fine tune it. So we had this version where Dan participated and in the simulation game. So years ago, we did the simulation game for the first time and we wrote a paper on this. And now we just finished a new paper where we came up with a new grasshopper based simulation game, which is really awesome. Whoa. I don't think we have that online yet. We have three tutorials that are already online. And it's basically, it's a full grasshopper based version on this game where the we played that last year with the students. And in an hour, you can do 35 variations on your building. Mm. And so automatically you draw your building massing in Rhino it automatically links it to a grasshopper file, runs a multi 
zone axiom simulation and it shows you in the Rhino viewport your simulation results and all the ones that you had before so you see automatically a history mm. and it's a wow. it's a really Great. fun way of having play we have uh, we have this MIT dollar approach again where we basically based on the upgrades that you put in and since we're in Rhino it calculates from you what the actual how many glazing areas you have how much the actual cost upgrade is going to be so this is something that's the best example where the research and the teaching are completely hand in hand. But that shows you us also on a very fundamental level where, where design tools should go. That is the best design tool in my opinion we ever did because it takes hardly any preparation on the designer side to get a huge amount of valuable information. So the only reason why I'm in walkability is when I taught for the first class the urban modeling. I think you yeah. already took that class. We did the UMI. So yeah. The walkability score put it in your grasshopper. You put it in your exactly. So this is really, we. Uh, I thought it was yeah. a good idea. It comes, yeah, it comes from, it's very organic and that's the best. Yeah. So classes should be, I think Walkscore was just online yeah. Yeah. at that time. The algorithms were public. Right. So you should Take just it. put them in. Yeah. It's not research, it's not teaching. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. There's no distinction. and That's the best you can have, right? Totally. Yeah. I know Johnny programmed it for the right. first time yeah. and, and you guys used it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you adapted it to the Haiti case yeah. and that's, that's the best that could happen. Right? That was great. Yeah. yeah. Do you have tips for students that are conducting forms of research and tips about conveying that research or disseminating it? Mm -hmm. I think your work is accessible and not as intimidating as it very easily could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really what I learned and changed in my research more when I was at the GSD because I was so surrounded by designers mm -hmm. and I still have a very weak spot for if there are several people applying to my group to favor the designers. And I always say this, it's easier to teach building science to a designer than design to an engineer. Which I mean is exactly what you said. When you have basic training as an architect, well then first, if you want to do real research, you have to get deep. I think the worst an, uh, an architect in research can say is, oh, I don't know this, I'm just an architect. That's a total no-no to say. If you want to do interdisciplinary important research, you have to go all the way in depth. That's my strong belief. So this is, this is always, oh, we're doing this even though we are architects, that, that, that's meaningless, right? Either you do research or not. But if your basic training is in architecture and you have this ingrained, you train, were well, trained how to put a building together, then naturally, I think, all, when you spend time on developing everything, anything very deep, you want to show how it's going to look in a design case. And then you will come up with great engaging design cases that people are understanding. Narratives and Yeah, and this, is, and this is how you would do it and people buy it from you. Ideally, because if you're in a post-professional degree program in architecture, you've been there, you might have practiced, you know exactly, you own the problem and you, uh, you made the solution. Mm -hmm. And that's when it just falls naturally in place. So I heavily rely on others for that. Well, I think that how you bring out the salient pieces of research into the tools that you do. So not overwhelming day-to-day -day architect, not yeah. the one that wants to apply to your group, but with you know somebody who's just using your tool with too much information. Yeah. And so how are you balancing that question of what's enough? That's a good one. I think our tools have to be deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. So that's why I really meant it when I said, well, in this button, we should put a huge amount of time. There can be a year's worth of work in the greatest button or a simulation tool. Of course, then the curse is 
when people think it's too easy and they just run away and they don't know the limitations of their tool. And there's a, that's a give and take. On the one hand, the tool developer should really work hard on at least flagging a misuse of a tool, say, well, what you're doing right now, we actually, this tool cannot answer this question. Uh, and on the other hand, this is where I think this is really where as building educators, we really have to, to train. If we decide to use a tool in teaching, we have to train it to a level that the student body is aware of what it can do and what it can't do. So it's a give or take a little bit. Well, and also the question of major gains for a little work versus minor gains for a lot of work. So yeah. The simulation game, you're getting a lot of feedback from a couple simple moves versus optimizing a particular window blind detail that only gives you some tenths of a percentage point of energy efficiency. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is difficult because you could say, even though I love shader weight a lot, when we look at it, in the end, you always have to say, well, how much energy do I really save? And then in modern buildings, fully air conditioned to have a bit of a shading device. In many, many cases, once you have a decent window, it might not be that big. Exactly. So that has to be part of the feedback. Right. Yeah. Because obviously it's really fun as a designer, as somebody who creates form, to tinker with a shading system, right? Sure. And then get lost in it. And that's uh, something we have to work on too. How do we get them really to, to make the important moves? Which, <laughs> which might be to say, well, the shading, it's good, it's great, it's fun, and it has a long history in architecture, going back to Le Corbusier. And even farther. <laughs> but is it really, it's a range of effect that it really has. Well, sure, and also the reality that building performance is one of a number of variables that an architect is considering yeah. when they're designing a building, yeah. or architects in collaboration. Well, that always, that's of course very important. This is why it's so important, so crucial that our tools are easy to use, so it's not like you have to become an expert. Ideally, you are not an expert at all. So tell us about Diva Day. Diva Day is uh, an event that we started in 2012 at MIT first, where we really tried to have a discussion on the use of building performance simulation tools by designers in practice. And to a degree in education, we started having that as well. So what we are doing on this day, on the one hand, we are just spending some time explaining what are, has been our own latest work and what are we adding to Diva itself. But we try to really spend the overwhelming majority of time having invited power users that know the tool very well, be it from a consultancy or architecture firm, large firms that really describe projects where they use Eva or other tools. We don't want to be limiting that at all and how that created value for design. That's really what it's all about. And we are now for the first time at the AA in London because we've never been to Europe and I think it would be good. It's an iconic place to just explore design, obviously. We'll have a whole range of consultancy firms and architecture firms showing their work. And, and we do some training before and after the event, but I'm really looking forward to having this discussion more with key designers. Yeah, so who are the power users that are going to be there? Well, we uh, we have Atelier Tenda and we have oh. actually Transsolar, we have actually Thomas Auer from Transsolar, who is also has the chair for building science in Munich right now. So that would be a good mix. 
We are looking into having somebody from Foster and Partners and from Arab that hasn't been finalized. And we have various practitioners also from Denmark and from other European countries, like smaller firms that have been using our tool, but that are very good on the design end. Great. Yeah. Two more questions. One, do you have a teaching philosophy? Yeah, I have a teaching philosophy, I always say, which is now, unfortunately, has been used too extensively. I really try to use the classroom as a living lab, but I said that from the first day. I think the classroom is just, should be a, a place to not only convey established knowledge, but to create new knowledge for discussions. And that can happen, I think, especially if your classroom is small enough that you can establish a dialogue between the students and the instructor, like actively exchanging ideas. That, that's my key driver in philosophy. And just to see what I teach applied in design, because ultimately it's not by accident that I'm in a school of architecture, even though I'm not uh, a designer or an architect. It's really what we said, Dan and I worked on a project together that we called, or I took called it the Lorax project, where I said, which is a little, uh, a tacky, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm the lowest to like speak it. for the designers. But ultimately, it's really I, I think very often designers don't take a, uh, don't take a voice in standards in all these important groups and professional organizations that really form how we practice today. You usually don't find any architects, and that's a big problem, right? And then it's easy to complain about Ashley ninety point one appendix G because it ignores architectural design to a very large degree. But if no architect has ever been on that committee, it's not a surprise. Right? And final question: What is your spirit animal? I really have to struggle. I have no time to think about. It. We had we're really... talking about. It. I emailed you at noon. Yeah, but <laughs> we, I, should, uh... we should be able to uh, interpret the spirit animal. Yeah. So something like heterotropic. Maybe something cold-blooded that not not in that <laughs> way, but, you know, like very in tune with the solar day. Yeah, you know, like a lizard or something. Yeah, I like that. Somebody, uh, yeah. I think, an animal that makes conscious use of knowledge to improve his own life. And it can't be a beaver because I'm <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, the beaver comes up in almost every. The beaver is a great. Beaver. Really? Yeah. 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 Well, because they're you know they're sort of architecty. And they're you ingenious know, on many levels. Right, yeah, and, uh, yeah. They build things, they're monogamous, you know. But I'm not an architect, so I want to be the guy, uh, the animal that uh, whispers into the beaver's ear how to build that damn yeah, yeah. even better. I think that was Winnie the Pooh. Winnie <laughs> 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 the Pooh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. There you have it, folks. The apostle to the beavers, Christoph Reinhardt. Christoph, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. I really hope those lectures from Diva Day are up online after the event. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to Diva Day organizer and one of the co-founders of Solemna and Diva, Kara Lagios. Kara, you are missed at Lamb Partners, but sounds like you're doing great things out west. Have a great time in London. Also, speaking of London, remember Diva Day is only a few weeks away, so if you are planning on being there, October 23rd, head over to the Architectural Association and check it out. You can find out more at Diva for Rhino's website, linked from our section cut page. I also highly recommend Christoph's Sustainable Design Group's website, which is also posted on our page. It's full of great content for students, designers, and educators, all daylighting and energy simulation materials.
Section Cut is a community of curators, designers, design educators, architects, landscape architects, urban designers, lighting designers, artists, the list goes on, but we are all contributing to a growing collection of the most valuable resources and best design objects in existence, at least we think so. We write, we record, and publish content under the moniker Studio Culture, demystifying the design process. If you have an idea for a how-to, a Sage Council post, or some other story, hover over your profile in the upper right-hand corner of our website and click Contribute. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's episode was produced by Kyle Sturgeon and myself, Dan Weissman, with production assistance by Michael Joy. On next week's episode, Lauren Shirley and I speak with Mark Pasnick and Chris Grimley of Over Under slash Pink Comma Gallery in Boston. We'll be releasing their book, Heroic, a review of brutalist architecture in mid-century Boston. And in the words of Chris Grimley, We will chain ourselves to the city hall. Uh, <laughs> yes, at some point <laughs> in our lives. I can't wait. Until next episode, keep burning that midnight oil.